That's awesome. Well, good morning. It's, it's good to have you here. It's good to see you here. Great having you guys online as well. And wow, yesterday. What, what do you think of that bizarre victory? I mean, who would have thought Florida would beat Georgia by that much? I don't know if you were thinking, I don't know what you were thinking I was talking about, but um, no, seriously, it has been a bizarre, what a week, what a month, what a season. And this country is in a very, very tough spot. And right now, you as an individual, adding to a lot of the unrest and the pandemic and the personal things, and then the elections added on, and there's some people that are relieved and, and, and happy. Others are, are, are devastated or disappointed. There's, there's anger. There's uncertainty. That's all mixed in. And we're thinking, well, what about that? What about that? And I want to pick up, as we start this new series, Following Jesus Together, let's pick up where we left off last week. Steve Brown brought this passage up. It was in the passage that we concluded the series with, John chapter 21, verse 22. Peter and Jesus are taking a walk on the beach, and Peter's heard some things about John. Jesus said a few things. Rumors are going around. And there's that vying. Peter had been devastated by failure, but he's also caring about... Okay, well, what about John? And Jesus answers, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As my elementary school teacher, Mrs. Cook, would tell me, you mind your own little red wagon. That's what's in the Greek somewhere in there. And look at the next phrase. In the midst of all of this other stuff, your primary priority... Ultimately, you must follow me. Whether your health is great or not, whether your candidate won or not, whether there's confidence in process or not, whether the pandemic continues or not, all of that other stuff, we must engage. We're not to stick our heads in the sand, but there is a priority that, that is to rise above it all. You must follow me. And that's what this series is about. Let's ask our rabbi. He's not our candidate. He's our king, Jesus. Let's ask him to speak. Let's talk to him. Let's pray. Jesus, I I don't know all the circumstances and situations of everyone here or online, but you do. But we've all got enough going on to know that we have been distracted by stress and uncertainty and excitement, and anger, and despair, and trepidation. The list goes on and on. And I ask that you'd give us the courage to, right now, in the midst of all that's going on in our hearts and in our culture, give us the courage to sit at your sandaled feet and submit before you as our rabbi and then follow those sandaled feet. Teach us what that means. I submit before you. I want to listen along with my companions here. And I ask this in the name of you who are way and truth and life. Amen. Amen. Several years ago, I 
was driving in southern Alabama to visit my mother. And it's the single two-lane roads. You know, they're not, it's only one lane, traffic's going one way the, on these two, two lanes, and uh, it's curving around, so you really don't know what's going to be around the bend. And I came around the bend to a line of brake lights, people that were stopping, and up, t- up front, I couldn't tell what was going on, but what was intriguing is the cars at the front of the line were swerving. It looked like a, a bunch of uh, intoxicated drivers right after one another. I said, what in the world is going on? And the closer I got, the more I realized what, it, what was happening. There was some construction going on, and so the traffic coming this way was stopped. There was no traffic coming the opposite way. That lane was clear, and there was a shoulder that was, that was wide enough for the people to be on, for cars to be on on that side. And there was a construction worker, and I don't know if it was his first day on the job, but it was, I think, very possibly his first day directing traffic, and he had not been sufficiently equipped. He had a cone in his hand, and he was directing people. What he wanted people to do was to go on this closed-off lane because the traffic had been stopped on the other side. And so what he should have been doing is this. But what he was doing was he wasn't varying his cadence at all, and so instead of this, he was doing this. And so the drivers were coming up, and he was doing it with great authority. And they were looking at him, and there were some people that were on the, the, uh, on, on the, the shoulder, there were other people on the road. It was hilarious, except for uh, this construction worker who was trying to be authoritative, and he was doing it with great energy, but without any wisdom. Let me set this series up for you in the context of our vision. Our vision is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. If you're new with us, to be alive in Christ is not heart-beating, lung-breathing life, even though that's His gift. It's the life of God. It's what we were intended for that was lost in the garden that Jesus came to restore. A primary verse there, if there are plenty of them that many of you know by heart since we went through John's Gospel, it's Jesus' mission statement. John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's a reference to Satan in the garden and what he wants to do every day of my life, to rob me of living to the glory of God. He says, but let me tell you why I've come. I've come that they have life, have it to the full. The Greek word there is zoe. It's the life of God. It's not just lung breathing, heart beating. He says, you were intended to have the life of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. And so when we are born again, we're born into, by His Spirit, into the life of God. Jesus, His mission was to bring life to us as human beings as well as to the, compo- the, the entire cosmos, renewing of all things. So that's His mission. But what was His strategy? How to bring that about? Matthew 28. At the end of his journey, right before his ascension, he says then, this is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after his 40 days of teaching them the implications, before he ascends to the Father, he came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is not the authority of a construction worker who's been handed a cone and just tries to make something up. This is the authority of not a candidate, but the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe. He says, therefore... Go 
and make disciples. You know why I came. I came to bring life. And I did it by discipling you. Now you go and do what I did for you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, you're not going to be doing this alone. I'm with you. I'm with you to the very end of the age. Now that phrase, make disciples, is a strategic phrase. It's, it was his strategy when he came, and it was a strategy that he entrusted to us. But it wasn't just something out of the blue. It was part of their culture. In the Galilee, the Galilee was a rabbinical environment, meaning you had people that were serious about their walk with God and their study of the Scriptures. To them, they only had the Old Testament. And in the Galilee, the pre pre predominant uh, rabbis of the first century were not Judean, but they were Galilean. And it was for such a time as this, Jesus began his ministry in the Galilee. Now, the way it would work is a young, a young man, a little boy, a little girl, five years old about, they would enter into elementary school, Bet Safar is what they would call it. And this house of the law, and they would spend the next five, six years studying the Torah. First, Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And more often than not, they would memorize the entire first five books of the Old Testament, not a verse every couple of years. Remember, they didn't have the Scripture. They had one community scroll, the parchment in the synagogue. And so the way that you meditated on Scripture is you memorized. In fact, historians of the day talk about in the synagogue school the chirping of children of them reciting the Torah. When they turned 12, they moved into Bet Talmud or Bet Midrash. It's the same type of school. Sometimes it was called one or the other. They focused on the prophets and the oral tradition. Then, 16 to 18 and there, they would be completed with their studies, and then the top students would go to renowned rabbis in the community and say, would you take me on as one of your disciples? Or the word that they would use, one of your Talmud, your Talmudim, Talmud, singular, Talmudim, plural, disciple, disciples. I want you to disciple me. Basically, they were making an application saying, would you take me on? And very few made it. They would then go back to their family trade. Not as failures, because everybody knew it was a small number that would be accepted by the rabbis. And that was the context of our main passage of Scripture here in, that we're using for this series, Matthew chapter 4. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And as Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, now he's already been doing miracles. He's already been doing some amazing teaching. People know of him. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And what was remarkable is what you're about to read. These are two that they didn't make the cut. 
But they didn't, are not going to the rabbi. The rabbi is coming to them saying something. They were casting a net into the lake and for they were fishermen. And here's what Rabbi Jesus says to them. Come. Follow me. And I'll send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Every one of the gospel writers talks about this strategy of Jesus of making disciples, of, of being a rabbi with his Talmudim. In fact, Matthew and Mark's text of this, this, the identical wording is there. Mark was written first. Matthew very possibly took Mark's wording. But Mark continued on right after that when he had gone a little farther. So he's already called Andrew and Simon. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. And they followed him. Now, this is not them abandoning their duties. Their parents were ecstatic that a rabbi had come to them, this famous rabbi, this rabbi that was doing miracles, validating his ministry. And so it was a deep honor. And Jesus comes and says, follow me. And it was an authoritative call, but an authoritative call, not recklessly, but with great substance. When he says, come, follow me, it's invitation and calling. There's an aspect in which he's not, he's not coming as a candidate. He's coming as the creator, sustainer of the universe and saying, I made you and I've come to restore you into what you originally were intended for. Come. Follow me. And he said it with authority. Rabbis of the day even the great, the great rabbis, very few of them would be said to have had a samika, a Hebrew word meaning authority. Uh, most rabbis, no matter how high up they went, they were not given permission to give their own interpretations of the law. They had to kind of stick to the playbook. But rarely, every now and then, you would have a rabbi that would have samika, a, a significant authority that would be bestowed upon and because of, because of his wisdom. And he could then give his own interpretation. So here's Jesus, a young man, 30 years old. Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, verse 28, Matthew 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had samika, authority. And not as their teachers of the law. It was a calling of invitation. It was an invitation that was calling, and it was something that was contagious. It was, it was life-giving. There, there was an aspect of care and love and wanting to do relationship. General Eisenhower, uh, during World War II, and then became president, he loved speaking to his primary generals about leadership, and he would get a piece of string, and we would put it on the table, and we would talk about leadership is pulling, not pushing. You demonstrate it by pushing the string, it would make a mess. But he said, true leadership is when you're pulling. You're going first and then having people follow. And what Jesus was doing is saying, I'm going to lead you down a path of life. I want you to come follow me. What does that look like? Let me give you four 
characteristics. There are plenty more, but these are four of the dominant characteristics that you would see in a, 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 a Talmud rabbi relationship, but specifically in the relationship of Jesus and his disciples. What he was saying in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples. He says, I've been doing this with you for three years. Now you go be rabbis and disciple others. Not rabbis that are saying, I know it all, but people that are going to walk together. But we first have to be followers. We've got to be disciples to make disciples. So what does it look like to be a disciple? It means submitting, bottom line, to his life-giving authority in, in four ways. Number one, submitting to his life. A disciple of Jesus is someone who's submitting to his invitation, to his calling to come alive. We talked about this so often. It's our vision. It's at our heartbeat. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, you've got a GPS. He didn't use that phrase back then. But we all have one. Every human being has a GPS. An internal compass about there's more to life than this. An internal compass that says, I I'm meant to thrive, not just survive. Ecclesiastes refers to it as the eternity that's in our hearts. But we can't quite put our finger on what it is. And so a lot, of, most often in our sin, our rebelliousness, we go try to, to uh, satisfy that, that, that broken GPS coordinate. And we go about trying to find that fulfillment in the wrong way. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of Zoe, of life, the life of God. He says, you know what you yearn for. And every human being is looking for significance, is looking for shalom, is looking for a sense of purpose and goodness and truth and beauty and to make a difference and to have destiny and to be victorious and have a sense of justice. That's all there. But we go about it in the wrong way. And Jesus says, come to me, submit to my authority, not as a candidate that you're pandering to to get a religious affiliation. Come to me, submit to me, and I will be your life light of life. I will lead you down the path that is life-giving and glorifying to my Father, and it's what you are intended for. John 20, 31, we've looked at this how many times? But I want you to see it through a different, a different lens. This is John writing. He tells why he wrote his gospel. This is John writing as an old man, white hair or no hair. He's probably the only disciple that didn't lose his life, that wasn't martyred for his followership of Jesus. He was still persecuted. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. But he writes this, I've written this gospel. These, these stories, these accounts that I've included under the leadership of the Spirit have been included that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that He was who He claimed to be. And... And, and by believing, you may have life in His name. We refer to that part A, orthodoxy, part B, vibrancy. Not just getting the right religious framework, but understanding who Jesus is, and then on a daily basis, continue to believe Him that you might have life in His name. But here's what I want you to do, to, to the filter, to, to take a look at this. He's an old man. He's re reflecting back to his days as a Talmud of Jesus, as a disciple. 
And he came to know Jesus for who he was, and also Jesus led him down the foot, as the psalmist refers to, the path of life. It happened. That by believing you may have Zoe, the life of God, in his name. How does that happen? That happens through discipling one another. Me being discipled by Jesus, you being discipled by Jesus, and then us discipling one another. And it's a multiplication effect of the life of God. And so to be a disciple is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to submit to Jesus. To submit to Jesus is to submit to His authority. To submit to His authority is to submit, first of all, to His life. Secondly, it's to submit to His love. Disciples submit to the love of Jesus. I've had a number of discipling relationships over my life, and I've seen people that there are people that, that are drawn to discipleship to cover content. Discipling is a relational word. It's not an academic word. And if the heartbeat of discipleship is, is people learning about the love of Jesus. And a mature disciple is a loved disciple, a disciple who knows he or she is loved and is living loved. John chapter 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life. It's the only time Jesus defines eternal life. You've heard me say that many times if you've been here. That they may not know about you, but know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you sent. They may know you. Years ago, a guy I met, he had a, went to work for a restaurant while I was in college. His manager, his name was John. And John, to Ori, and he said, let me tell you about the, the owner of the restaurant. And he proceeded to tell him that when I started working here, the owner said to me, we're going to be good friends, I think, as long as you make me money. You don't make me money, we're not going to have that good of a relationship. And so often we think, okay, I've got to behave, and then that'll get God to love me. A disciple understands that Jesus comes. We do not come to him and say, hey, I got an idea. Would you like Jesus already, he initiates, he takes the first step in the stance. John 3:16. For God so wanted followers, no, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe on him. Shouldn't perish, but have eternal zoe. Paul was gripped by this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. One of the first verses that I memorized in a discipleship relationship with a guy that was, was walking me through the basics. He says, I've been, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Positionally, I, my sins are paid for. I've paid the penalty because I was in Christ on the cross. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me now. So as a human being, I now have come alive. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And this is all founded on the God who loved me, not wanted me as a constituent, one who loved me and gave his life for me. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus prayed on the mountaintop about his disciples, and he called them, Mark 3.13, Jesus went up a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12. Would you pay attention to this next phrase? 
that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. But it's in that order. Do you know why he comes to you as a human being and says, okay, all this other stuff's happening, I got it. But as for you, I want you to follow me. Come follow me. Submit to my life. But I want you to submit to my love. You know why? Because I want to be with you. I want to do life with you. Not do church. I want to do all of life. Not just do a quiet time on a particular day. All the day. And disciples walk in relationship, submitting to His love. There's a third characteristic of a disciple. To follow Jesus is to submit not only to His life, not only to His love, but to His leadership. Disciples are led men and women. We don't just describe to a candidate and say, yep, voted for Jesus and I'm headed to heaven someday. It's a matter of following His path. John chapter 1, verse 1, do you guys know that great prologue? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek word there for word is logos. It was the unifying truth of the universe. Philosophers had talked about it for years, and here's this little Galilean fisherman, inspired by the Spirit, that gives this unifying call regarding who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that was revelatory in and of itself. But down in verse 14 of John 1, he blows it wide open when he says, the Word became, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So here is Jesus walking as the way and the truth and the life. And as I relate with Him, I'm following Him. And I'm following Him in the way that He tells me reality is, where fulfillment is. Uh, David Gibson's guy lives up in... Idaho, and he and a buddy of his were on the Snake River, the upper fork of the Snake River. His buddy had just gotten a 19-foot jet boat. V8 engine, man. I mean, they got on it, and they were, they were moving. It's about 35 miles an hour, he said. It had been a drought year. They hit a sandbar. It was not a pleasant sight as they got thrown forward and so forth. They got out, they were standing in about four inches of water, five inches of water, and they're thinking, what are we going to do now? So they started to dig out. The guy stopped to help them. It took them three hours to dig this brand new boat out. And the guy said, listen, I spend hours on this river every day. I know you want to get your new boat out and go for a spin, get some speed up. So I'm going to head back to the area where you launched your boat. Follow me. I know the river well. And you'll be able to experience what this boat's meant for. So they followed him. They got up 35, 40 miles an hour. And David said, then his buddy had this stupid idea to veer a little bit because it looked like some really good water. And he just a little bit and wham, they hit another sandbar. This one far more detrimental. David was thrown, broke the windshield. The guy circled around, didn't have a whole lot of compassion for them. He circled around, he stopped, and he says, I told you guys to follow me. Not, not generally, specifically. And Jesus says, follow me. I'm the Logos. John began his gospel 
talking about the Logos, he also begins his epistle, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, one of the beautiful things is that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. All right, something unique happens in the New Testament writers because the word, the logos is Jesus, but the logos is also the scriptures. And then you see this culminating, kind of a completion of the, 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 the circle of saying the word of life, because there John is referring to primarily the person of Jesus. But then Paul says something very unique in Philippians 2, verse 15, then you will shine among them. You want to know how to stand out in your culture? You'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. This is not a coffee table book. Disciples eat this book because it's the word of life. So I'm relating with the word. I'm reading the word. Both are the word of life. And as I submit to him, as I engage, I'm following him. I'm following what the way that he has marked out. And then something begins to happen. I've become free as a human being. Not constricted Roman, uh, John chapter 8, verse 31, 32. He says, let me tell you something. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciple. You want to know what a disciple is? Not just somebody who goes to church. A disciple is somebody that, that eats the word. But this is the result. Not narrow religiosity. Then you know the truth and the truth sets you free to be who God has called you to be. Submitting to his leadership is not suffocating, it's liberating. Disciples know how to dance as human beings to the glory of God. The religious Pharisees know how to suffocate. Jesus came along and said, follow me and I'll teach you to live. There's a fourth characteristic though. A disciple? is somebody that believes in Jesus, has received him as king and as savior, and submits to his life. They come alive. They submit to his love. They live as a loved man, loved woman. They submit to his leadership, become men and women of the book. But fourthly, a disciple is somebody who is following Jesus and submitting to his likeness. A student wants to know what his or her rabbi knows. A disciple wants to live like his or her rabbi lives. A student focuses on knowledge, but no, no, it's not just students. We're taught Jesus is saying be a disciple. And in that culture, disciples, it wasn't just come to class when a, 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 somebody would come to a rabbi and say, I want to be your disciple. That meant a 24-7. They lived with this rabbi, watched him eat and drink and cry and laugh and tell jokes and give sermons and do teachings and respond to crises. 
And over the course of time, they would become more and more like their rabbi. I saw in a plane a while back a movie I'd, even, I'd forgotten about. And it was in the classic section. It was a movie Jack Nicholson starred in, As Good As It Gets. He and Helen Hunt, and he's this obnoxious guy. And uh, she's this waitress. They developed this weird relationship. And, and she finally says, I need a compliment from you. And he has been a self-focused man that was as irritable to so many. And he looked at her and he said, Carol, you make me want to be a better man. There's an aspect about Jesus makes us want to be a better human being. But on that, let's talk about it for a second. I've had some interesting discussions over these this last couple of years with this, this vision of engaging people to be fully alive, that phrase, fully alive. And this is a great question. Wait a minute. I thought we were to, supposed to be like Jesus. Now we're saying we're supposed to be fully alive? Uh, well, which is it? Well, let's complicate it further. We also will use the phrase, let's be fully human to the glory of God. Wait a minute. I don't think we're supposed to be fully human. I thought we were supposed to be like Jesus. So which is it? Do we, are we supposed to be like Jesus or to be fully alive or to be fully human? Yes. And you can't have one of those without the rest. Jesus was the first fully human man to walk the face of this earth since Adam and Eve before the fall, and obviously even more different because he was also fully God. He's the first fully alive where the rest of us are born dead. And as I begin to walk with Jesus, I become like him. I become, I start to resemble him. And as a disciple, you're going to look more and more like Jesus, still with your, your unique personality, the beautiful ways that God has wired you and fashioned you. And those, those points of pain that have helped shape you, those incredible victories, they're part of who you are. So you'll look a little different than, than you, but you're also going to look similar because you're going, both going to resemble Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul says, let me tell you what the purpose here is. For those whom God foreknew, who he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He says, come, follow me, and you're going to become like me. You're going to begin to bear my resemblance. We're Imago Dei, images of God, but we're broken image bearers. He's come to restore that. He says, so come. What rabbis would do, they, would, they wouldn't say, they wouldn't just say, come and listen to what I'm teaching. Come live like I live. There's a phrase Paul uses. He says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. That's a rabbinical statement. That's a discipleship statement. It's not a prideful statement. So, some accountability there. Because rabbis, it was a two-way relationship. The Talmudim would hold the rabbi accountable. Man, I better, I better make sure that I'm living according to God's leadership and love and life because they're going to become like me. I'm reproducing who I am in them. Jesus actually put it this way in, in, in John chapter 13, verse 13. He says, you call me rabbi, which is what the word there is. You call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and Rabbi, have washed your feet, 
you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an, you an example that you should do as I have done for you. That is a very rabbinical discipleship statement of that culture. You've seen me do it, now you go do it. You've seen me live this way, now you go live this way. Go bear my image. Go look like me. But we're to bear his image, and I'm going to use a word you don't hear a whole lot. We're to bear his image by derivation, not just imitation. And here's what I mean like that. If, if I've got two uh, things in a frame up here, and both bear my image, I could have a photograph. That's my image by imitation. I don't have to be around for that thing to look like me, to bear my image, right? I can be on the other side of the world. For this photograph, it's bearing my image. That's, that, that, that's image by imitation. But over here, let's say it's a mirror. For that mirror to bear my image, that's by derivation, meaning to be derived by the subject present tense, continually. You and I are not just the, the what, would you, what would Jesus do thing that happened a while back. That's a great thing, but it's a danger. It's not just imitating. I'm not just walking around in my own strength doing what Jesus did. I am living the life of Christ by His Spirit. In John 14, Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper, my Spirit, who is going to enable you to be like me. Go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Hear it in a different way. I emphasize the last phrase. Now I'm going to emphasize an earlier one. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. So I am trusting. Now when I trust Jesus, His Spirit comes to take up residence in me, and now He clothes Himself with my humanity. I'm uniquely mapped, but I'm also to bear the fragrance of Jesus. And there's a difference. The mat without Jesus better be a lot different than the mat with Jesus. And it's not just me religiously saying, this is where I want to go. I want to just imitate Jesus. I want, to be, I want His Spirit to take up residence. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. <laughs> Which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. So it's me being Spirit-filled, Spirit-controlled. So I start resembling Jesus. I start obeying Him, but trusting Him to enable me Jesus, what would you do in this situation? Holy Spirit, would you give me the strength to do that? So this is my prayer for you, and I pray it's your prayer for me. It's what Paul prays and talks about this in Galatians chapter 4. He uses this phenomenal phrase. He says, I, I, I agonize as in the pains of childbirth that Christ may be formed in you. And that is our yearning. From a leadership standpoint here, that Christ would be formed in you, and in you, 
and in you. What does this culture need? Elections go this way or that way, but bottom line, as far as it depends on, may we follow him and be his disciples and submit to his life and his love and his leadership and his likeness. When I was growing up, mom and dad both had red hair. Dad's hair was the color of mine. Mom's was darker red. It was auburn. My auburn colored. My older brother and older sister both had red hair. And we had an Irish setter. So we covered the waterfront. We were quite a spectacle. And, uh... But one of the great honors that I had, my dad was a godly discipler. I mean, the last half to third of his life, he got so serious about the gospel, serious Jesus, started discipling to a ton of men who still will connect with me. And I can see my dad in them and the way they react to different circumstances. But one of my great honors was when I would be in the community doing something, maybe a service project, maybe leading the key club or uh, doing a sporting event, leading a, whatever it would be. But if somebody in that community would say, you're George Hurd's boy, aren't you? You look like him. You're Jesus' disciple, aren't you? You look like him. You too. You too, the, the way you serve, the way you live, the way you worship, the way you love. Our political process is a mess in so many ways, but let me tell you this, our hope is not in our political process, whatever way it goes, our hope is in following Jesus. Let's stand together. I want to pray for you. Jesus, thank you for every person here. May we be images of yours in this culture. May we submit before you, not as our candidate, but our king, and submit to your life, to your love, to your leadership, and to your likeness. And may we, with that ever-increasing glory that Paul wrote about to the Corinthians, uh, may we look a little bit more like you next week this time than we do today. Yeah, yeah there's going to be two steps forward and three steps back at times. You get that. We're still in fallen bodies in a fallen world, but your Spirit's in us and you're, you're shaping us. We want to be disciples of yours, and we want to make disciples. And we want to see our culture cared for and healed and the kingdom advanced. King Jesus, make it so. I pray this in the name of you as way, you as truth, and you as life. Amen. Amen.